So what does it take to get a second wind with God? That's what we're talking about in this series. That, that when you and I are feeling tired, beat up, weary, or, or even at our wits end, or maybe just plain placid and staid in our walk with God, what is it that's going to rev us up? What is it, as the old time spiritualists used to say, that's going to revive us? But what is it that's going to get us going again? Or, or to put it most plainly, when you're in a funk with God, uh, when you just are, are, are just don't seem to be getting anywhere, what is it that's going to get you off the dime? What is it that's going to get you going again with God when you just seem to not be going anywhere? These are tough questions, and yet they're ones that we all face at certain times in our lives. Now, trust me in this. Live long enough, walk with God long enough through this fallen world of ours, and you will want to know the answers to these questions. Somebody came up to me the other day and said, boy, I'm really loving this series on Nehemiah about getting a second wind. She said it may be kind of sad that I was talking to a friend of mine who goes to church here and said, how are you enjoying Nehemiah? And he said, well, you know, when Jamie said we we're going to be doing this series on a second wind, I figured that wasn't for me, so I haven't been coming. Now, that guy's got a weird view of church in the first place that's for another sermon, but I also thought to myself, when he said that, I felt bad for him because I thought, you know what, there's going to come a day when you're going to need the truths that we're looking at in this series, so even if it's not for you right now, hang in there, it will be someday, maybe even soon. Because you see, God's word is both realistic and down to earth, and it, and it addresses these questions and more. Some people think the Bible is an archaic book that, you know, is kind of irrelevant and even boring. Not at all. The Bible is a very down-to-earth, realistic book that, that gives us very cogent and workable answers on how to find and follow God even through very dry times of the soul. And so this winter and spring here at our church, we've been looking at the Old Testament book of Nehemiah that talks about how to get a second win with God when you and me need it the most. And you might remember the context of this book. It's real important that I remind you of this just so that we all can understand what this book is about. Now, the context is that this book was written toward the very end of the Old Testament period when Israel had been in exile for over 140 years. Imagine that, taken over by other nations, in this case the Babylonians and the Persians, and they've lost everything that they knew and loved. Their homes, their family, their jobs, their temple, their city, Jerusalem. Their closeness with God was completely gone for seven generations. And so if ever a group of people felt distant from God and in need of revival, it was Israel in 445 B.C., uh, but now with the presence of Ezra and Nehemiah, the two main characters of this book, they have led a faithful group of followers of God back to Jerusalem where they're starting to rebuild their spirituality. So Ezra led them in rebuilding the temple where God dwells. Nehemiah, in our book here, has led them in rebuilding the walls and gates around Jerusalem so that there's protection and we noted over the last few weeks that there's really two parts to Nehemiah. 
all the pre-work needed in order for them to start walking with God again, getting a second wind. Things like learning about his grace and learning to pray again and how to live wisely and how to overcome obstacles. That's the first half of Nehemiah. But then I introduced you a couple of weeks ago to the second half of Nehemiah in which they are now starting to run and walk with God once again. They're starting to get their second wind. And we noted that there was going to be five key things that they needed in order to continue to get a second wind with God. Look up here on the screen. Those five things are and were truth, brokenness, commitment, joy, and holiness. The five building blocks of revival. The five building blocks for you and I today to get a second wind are to focus on truth, brokenness, commitment, joy, and holiness. And so we're spending the last five sessions of this series all the way up until Palm Sunday talking about each of these. And so a couple of weeks ago, we talked about truth. You can get that online. And today we come to the second trait necessary for the revival of God's people when we need it the most, that of brokenness. Now, we read a portion of the scripture for you earlier out of Nehemiah chapter 9. And it seems kind of complicated at first glance when you read Nehemiah 9. Because if you're not familiar with Old Testament salvation history, a lot of it goes over your head. Because it talks about Abraham and Moses and the wandering in the desert and the golden calf and, and the giving of the Ten Commandments and even the period of the judges that nudges us into that. And so it can seem like a complicated chapter. But it's actually not as complicated as it might initially appear. Because here's essentially what's happening in chapter 9. You might remember that in chapter 8, Ezra and Nehemiah had brought the Old Testament law back into the believing community. And you're saying, back? Well, again, they'd been in exile. I mean, for generations, they had not focused on God's truth and his law. And so in chapter 8, it was a moment in time as Ezra and Nehemiah brought the first five books, called the Book of the Law of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, back into the believing community. And you might remember, because I teased some of you, that for six hours they read the Bible to that, the people standing there in the open sun. And I said, man, you guys got it made, like 40 minutes with me and a few songs, and you're out of here. For six hours, they listened to the Bible being read. And, and as they were listening to the Bible being read, this is really important, two things happened. Again, picture these people having not known anything about God for seven generations. Two things happened. The first thing happened is that they realized that God historically had entered into some amazing covenants with Israel called the Abrahamic and Mosaic Covenants. They read about all that. They read about the fact that God had said to Abraham that if you follow me, you and your descendants will, will, will have more influence on the nations than any other people known to the history of humankind and that your righteousness will come through faith. And then they read about Moses and how the law was given and that God said, man, if you follow the law, if you just obey me and follow me, you're going to be blessed beyond measure and even get this thing called the promised land, which is now modern day Israel. And so they realized that God had been so good to their nation over the years through these covenants. But then simultaneously, they realized a second thing as this law was, as the, as the Bible was being read to them. And that is that they realized that the people, the Israelites, down through the centuries, had not been faithful to their end of the bargain. They had not been faithful to God, and that this is why they were in so much trouble. 
They, they realized that all they had to do was follow God faithfully, that their forefathers and foremothers had not done that, and that that's why God allowed exile. That's why God allowed Israel to be in so much trouble due to their unfaithfulness. And so now, when we get here to chapter 9 of Nehemiah, the people, here's what you need to see, are broken over their and their ancestors' failure to follow God wholeheartedly. And they're in big-time grieving mode over the fact that all of this calamity has come upon them because of their failure to keep covenant with God. And so this is a powerful chapter before us. It's what Bible experts call a thanksgiving and penitentiary hymn. And you're saying, what does that mean? Well, it simply means that they're thanking God in this hymn because he's not blown them off the face of the earth, that he's been patient and faithful to them, even in exile. But then it's called a penitential hymn because they're being penitent before God. They're grieving before God and broken before him over there in their ancestor's sin. And so maybe now you can understand, given that setting, verses 2 and 3 of this chapter as it opens up before us. Look up here on the screen. It says, And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, three hours. And for another quarter, three hours, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. And then in verses 4 through 31 that we didn't read for you, that you can read on your own later, it goes, it chronicles just the whole history of salvation history from Abraham through Moses and all the goodness of God that's found in the Pentateuch. But then it also talks about the disobedience and sin of Israel during that time. How they made a golden calf when Moses was up receiving the Ten Commandments. Talk about a contrast. And, and how they, they, they killed and spurned the prophets when they tried to tell them the truth. And how they completely ignored God's truth. Don't miss this, folks. It's a humbling and restorative time for the nation Israel as they realize why their nation has gone downhill so much over the centuries, and they're both thanking God for not giving up on them, but also showing brokenness over their choice and their forefathers' choice to not follow God. And this is all, as we're going to see here in a second, a second key to getting a second wind doing the kind of business with God in which we realize his amazing grace and yet our inability as fallen human beings to follow him wholeheartedly, or at least times when we do that. that that's going to be key to you and I understanding God and getting a second wind. I, I like how my pastor friend Tom Schrader says it. Look up here on the screen. This is a great quote. He, he says, the primary problem with humanity is that our view of ourselves does not descend low enough, while our view of God does not ascend high enough. <laughs> I think Schrader's right. I think the fact that many of us walk around today, even as Christians, saying, man, you know, I'm pretty good. I mean, God's real blessed to have me in his kingdom. <laughs> and then we approach God like he's some cosmic buddy, you know, that we can treat as sort of the neighbor next door. And I sit there and go, you know what, this is getting scary. You need to have a little bit of a lower view of yourself. We'll get to that in a minute. Again, you don't have to see yourself as a worm, but have a right view of yourself in light of God. And let's see God for who he is as a perfect, holy, other-than-us trinity 
that has existed for all of eternity in absolute perfection and purity. And until you get to that point and have a good theology on both ends of it, you're not going to understand how to get a second win with God. So what does this mean for you and me today? What, what does that have to do with our need for a second wind and our revival as a church? In our time remaining this morning, based on what we just set up there, I want to share with you something very revealing and life-giving about this chapter on brokenness. Now, something that's easy to miss if you're not looking closely and not reading this chapter for all it's worth. And it essentially has to do with two competing cycles that we see laid out in this chapter, two ways of living and relating to God, two different ways of interfacing, if you will, with God, both of which, now get this, I'm going to suggest are legitimate in their own right, both of which uh, you can choose to live and God will meet you as you live this way, but one is going to keep you in chronic Christian immaturity, and there's plenty of people walking around like this today, while the other, I'm going to suggest to you, is a more healthy, mature way of functioning with God that's going to help you start to learn how to get a second wind when you need it the most. Two competing cycles, and I'm going to call these the cycle of sin and forgiveness versus the cycle of woundedness leading to brokenness. And again, both are legitimate, uh, but one is going to keep you mired in more of a mediocre uh, phase with God. The other is going to help propel you into a more deeper phase with God. So let me explain each, show you how each is found in this chapter. Then I'm going to close in a few minutes asking you what is it going to be for you from this day forward. So first, the cycle of sin and forgiveness. This is clearly laid out in, in Nehemiah chapter 9. I'm going to show you how this is the pattern that Nehemiah 9 is talking about how Israel for centuries had interfaced and functioned with God. And there's basically four parts to this cycle and the way that you relate to God. And it goes like this. You live life for a while and you end up falling or disobeying God. When you do that, your life becomes distressed. And in that distress, you call out to God and cry out to him and begin to depend on him once again. And God, because he is good and loves you, delivers you in the midst of your distress. It's how Israel functions. It's how many Christians function today. They go from disobey to distress to depend to being delivered. And again, it's the cycle of sin and forgiveness. So notice how this cycle begins. It begins with our inability at times to follow God purely and faithfully to the point that we mess up and end up disobeying his will for us. So it says in verse 26 of Nehemiah 9, as they were reflecting on salvation history throughout the Old Testament, it says in verse 26, they, meaning Israel throughout all those years, were disobedient and rebelled against you, God, and cast your law behind their back. And then in verse 28, it says, but after they had rest, they did evil again before you. So it's a cyclical thing. Please see that, like they did it over and over again. And let's admit it, before we get too down on Israel, you and I are pretty good at disobedience as well today. Amen? That was really weak. You and I are pretty good at disobedience as well today. Amen? Amen. I mean, I'm telling you, I, you know, somebody came up to me after the last service and said, I have a friend who tells me he never sins. I said, I'd like to meet him. Is his name Jesus? Because I have never met 
a Christ follower today that would ever say that one and not become Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. I mean, the reality is, is that you and I fail God on a regular basis. I think at three levels. We fail God relationally. Uh, God, Jesus says that the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Let me ask you, anybody want to raise their hand that they did that perfectly this week? Glad nobody raised their hand. Venue and Cactus, hope no one's raising your hand over there. I, I don't think we live that one perfectly. We try, uh, but we fail on that level. I think on, on the second level of morality. Anybody here have perfect morality this week? I mean, anybody here not tell any white lies at all? You didn't cut any corners at all? You didn't go above the speed limit? You obeyed all the laws of the land? I know, that's a touchy one. I'm telling you, we fail God morally all the time. And if you're still not convinced, how about spiritually? Anybody here want to say they prayed enough this week? <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, we, we don't read the Bible as much as we should. We don't fellowship rightly with Christians the way we should. We, 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 we don't pray as much as we should. I mean, I'm not here to get down on us today. We just need to realize that like Israel, we disobey cyclically. All of us do this. And it obviously doesn't set well with us. In fact, it leads invariably to the second part of this cycle. And that is that it creates distress. In other words, when we fail to follow God relationally, morally, and spiritually, what the Bible calls sin, it has built-in consequences that separate us from God and even those around us. And so look at what it says in verse 27, right after it says that they disobeyed. It says, therefore, you, God, gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And then in verse 28, it says, And you, God, abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. You see, sin works this way. But when we rebel against God, sometimes there's just natural consequences built into it in which sin's going to make a mess of our lives. At other times, he loves you so much that you actually allow negative things to come into your life to wake you up to your disobedience so that you might walk with him once again. This is what Hebrews 12, 6 is getting at when it says this. The Lord disciplines those he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. So God doesn't do this because he hates us. He does this because he loves us. It's what we call tough love. In hope that we will come to our senses, he allows distress to come into our lives based upon our waywardness. And this then leads to the third part of this cycle, and that is that you and I wake up and we begin to depend on God once again. In other words, flowing from disobedience and flowing from the consequences of sin, but we be begin to depend on God again, and God is so good, he shows us mercy and forgiveness. He receives us. So look again, following the flow of the text, look at what it says in verse 27b. It says, And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And then cyclically again in verse 28b, it says, Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven according to your mercies. I'm telling you, folks, this is so quintessential God. That humanity messes up. Humanity has trouble because of their mess. God hears us when we cry out to him. He's that good and he loves us that much that even today when you and I are free falling in our lives because of the mess we have made and we pull the ripcord of all kinds of prayers of dependence, God hears those prayers. 
And through Jesus Christ, he loves us, and he starts to move in our lives. And this leads us to the fourth part of this, this cycle of sin and forgiveness, and that God doesn't just forgive us, he then delivers us. This is the fourth part of the cycle. It says in verse 27c that after they cried out, it says, You, God, heard from heaven and gave them saviors, small s, who saved them from the hand of their enemies. And then in verse 28c, the same thing. You, God, heard from heaven, I like how it says it here, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. <laughs> you ever wonder if God is patient with you? Many times times God delivered Israel. Again, read the Old Testament. It's like it's just, it's just this whole chronicling of this cycle here that you disobey, you get in distress, and then you depend on God. And many times God comes through. And here's the deal. We all know this. God is still doing this today. It's how a lot of Christians function, this cycle of sin and forgiveness. We kind of live our life and go on our way and do our thing, and eventually we think we're really doing well, but we get in trouble because we're not following God, and then we get in distress, and then we cry out to God, and God is so good, he saves our bacon on multiple occasions, right? It's just God. And it's a pattern that we see in the scriptures, and it shows us the patience and graciousness of God, even in the midst of our mess. And it's a pattern that you and I tend to live a lot today. And it's really tricky at this point, because as we're going to see in a second here, Nehemiah 9 is going to offer us a better way, what the book of Romans will, in chapter 7 will call a new and living way. It's a better way to live but we don't want to jettison this cycle of sin and forgiveness because it is why God gave us Jesus. Do we all understand that? I mean, God gave us Jesus so that there would be an eternal reason for him to forgive us of our sin, namely what Christ did for us. He gave us Jesus so that there'd be an eternal reason why God would put up with us even in the midst of our disobedience and mess. He loves you that much. There's a tremendous amount of grace in this cycle of sin and forgiveness. But, but here's the problem with this. If this becomes the sum total of your Christian experience, then what Nehemiah is going to affirm to us here is that you're just playing games with God. You're still an infant. You're still a child. As Dallas Willard, when he was alive, would say, you're just engaging in glorified sin management as a way of approaching God. You're basically saying, I fall into sin, I need help, so I cry out to God for help, God is good and gracious, he forgives me, and he gives me help, and then let's start the whole process all over again. It's a cycle of sin and forgiveness, and it's the way that many Christians today live. It's the sum total of their experience with God. And again, God loves you enough, he's willing to meet you at this level, but he's got more for you than that. What is that more? I, I want to show you a second thing going on here in Nehemiah that becomes the, the more. And, and it's a different cycle that allows you to upstream <laughs> your, your, your spiritual life before things get so bad that you have to enter into the cycle of sin and forgiveness. And, and, and I call this the cycle of woundedness leading to brokenness. Now, now, what am I talking about there? Before I show you how this appears in Nehemiah, I, I want to do something here first. I want to define my terms very carefully so that we all understand what I mean when I talk about woundedness leading to 
brokenness. Because you might mean something different than I mean with these terms. So look up here on the screen. Here's how I define woundedness. Woundedness is experiencing the effects of the fall of our sinful world and our sinful nature, both outside in as well as inside out. That's what I mean by woundedness. I'm going to suggest to you here in a minute that everybody on planet Earth, according to this definition, is wounded, right? I mean, nobody's escaped the fall. Every one of us are born into a fallen world, and even more sobering, we're born with a fallen nature inside of us in which we experience the woundedness of that from day one. Something's not right inside of us, and something's not right on planet Earth. And, you know, it's really tough in a town like Scottsdale to talk about this. Do you all know what I'm talking about? Because Scottsdale, in part, the most livable city, is designed to try to get us away from the effects of the fall. We build really nice resorts. We have bike paths. We have tons of golf courses. We have lots of sunshine. I, I mean, it's, in one sense, it's an idyllic city, which is why a lot of people want to live here. But the downside of it is that we can easily try to convince ourselves that this is not a fallen world in which we're just passing through. Amen? That was a really good spot for an amen, but I'm assuming you guys are with me. Because the reality is, is that God says every one of us are fallen inside our souls. Now hang on to that. And here's the difference between fallenness and brokenness, because that's all of humanity. Brokenness is defined as recognizing the woundedness within you and even without, from outside of you, and then responding with humility, repent, repentance, and deep dependence upon God in Christ. That's brokenness. It's getting to the point where you don't need to be convinced anymore how fallen you are. Again, to Schrader's point, you, have a, 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 you realize how, how deeply fallen you are. Your theology of yourself descends deep enough. And you realize your desperate need for God. Even before you actively engage in some form of disobedience, you know that something's wrong inside your soul and you desperately need God. That is brokenness. And that's what's going on here in Nehemiah. Now, let me show you. I showed you earlier that the pattern throughout most of the Old Testament, and even today, is that people disobey, and then they get in distress, and then they depend, and then they get delivered by God. It's interesting. There's a fourfold process, however, simultaneously going on here as they're reflecting upon their ancestors, that these guys in Nehemiah's day are saying, we don't want to do life that way. No, what we would rather do is this. Look up on the screen. We want to recognize our fallenness through recognizing the whole history of fallenness throughout our ancestors. And then we want to receive grace in our lives before we even mess up. And then we're going to release faith in God, trusting him with our whole hearts from this day forward. And then we're going to resolve, based upon a right understanding of ourself and God, to follow him from this day forward. I'm telling you, this is gritty. This is robust. This is Christian maturity. You and I getting to the point where before we have to enter into that cycle of sin and forgiveness, we recognize, receive, release, and resolve. Let me show you quickly how it's going on in this chapter because this is life-giving. Notice the cycle begins here with Israel in 445 B.C. Uh, making a choice to recognize something about themselves based on what their ancestors did way before they started to do what their ancestors did. 
And so it's interesting. If you look closely at verses 16, 17, and 29, it says that their ancestors and even them were a stiff-necked people who would not obey. I love that phrase, even though it's negative, stiff-necked people. Over and over again in the scriptures, three times here, God refers to Israel as a stiff-necked people. And I don't think he's picking on Israel. I think he's saying that all of us have this tendency to have a stiff neck inside of us. And it's a wonderful picture uh, here that you can apply to your soul. It's obviously from an agrarian culture where you might have a horse or an ox and you have a, a bridle and a bit, maybe in a horse or something, a harness or a yoke on an ox. And you have that so you can pull uh, on, on a certain side to get that animal to turn right or to turn left to do what you want them to do. And if the animal doesn't want to do what they do, what do they do? They, they stiffen up their neck. You ever, I, I, I'm not a horse rider, but every time I ride a horse, I'm like, I can go right, and it doesn't do a thing. And I'm yanking on, I'm like, you know, kick it, get going, you know, and it just stiffens its neck right up. It's an image of an animal that's saying, I don't care what you do to me, I'm not going that way. And God says that you and I have this innate tendency inside of us, way before we ever disobey, to be stiff-necked. Now, again, it's really important that you own this this morning. Some of you right now are doubting. You're saying, well, I don't think I'm a stiff-necked person. You know, if you're doubting it, ask your wife, all right? <laughs> ask your kids. Ask your best friends. And ask them to be honest with you. Is there any tendency at all in you? to dig your heels in and not do the right thing, the good thing, at certain points in your life. And again, I would just be stunned if you were the incarnation of the Lord here among us today, in which you never, ever had a stiff neck. And you see, the reason that this is so important for us to realize is that, now don't miss this, is that the root cause of disobedience is this internal stubbornness that you and I have to go our own way. The Bible says that before you even sin, you got sin nature in you. You didn't sin because of an oops. You didn't sin because someone outside made you do it. You did it because it's in you. And you carry it around in you because you're fallen. It's just part of the reality of living post-Adam and Eve. And core to getting a second win, core to growing up as a Christian, is to recognize that before it starts to get a stranglehold on your life. So like Israel, you admit, I got a stiff neck, God. It's in me. What do I do? You go on to the second thing here, and that is that you receive grace. Right at that moment, you recognize how fallen and sinful you are way before you even act. And then you look to God and receive his, sin, his forgiveness and grace way before you fall into any type of active sin. You know, this is actually what's going on in this entire chapter. I started to do a count this week of how many times it uses words like forgiveness and mercy and grace and abounding in love. Read the chapter later. It's like all over the place. It's incredible. And I think verse 17b kind of sums it up best. Right in the middle of their confession, the people say this to God. This is so revealing. But you are a God ready to forgive gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Please see this. These people are determined not to be like their ancestors. And yet they're present tense saying, God, but you're so good. You're ready to forgive. So even though we haven't yet actively fallen into the same trap our ancestors did, we know we got it in us. We're a stiff-necked people. And thank you 
for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. They're receiving God's grace on an active level. But it doesn't stop there. Then they release faith. So it's interesting. Once a person stops reading his or her own press releases about themselves and realize that they are not what other people think they are, and after you then receive God's grace and mercy and forgiveness, you're then ready to respond by saying, God, you're so good, I'm going to trust you with everything in me. And it's interesting. If you're tracking with me this morning, this is very similar to the third step of the cycle of sin and forgiveness, isn't it? Remember the third step of the cycle of sin and forgiveness was to depend on God. The only difference is is that you're not depending here because you're in trouble. You're not depending here because you need God to save you in some circumstance you're in. You're depending here just because you know who you are and who he is and that you need him each moment of each day. Isn't that awesome? Talk about Christian maturity. You're opening yourself up to God here saying, I need you every moment of every day simply because I know me and I know you and I need you. And it's what Israel does here in Nehemiah 9. Look at verse 32. This is amazing. We find them saying, now therefore, our God the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. What are they doing there? They're releasing faith. They're saying, oh God, we're putting our trust in you. And would you please protect us and not let the same thing happen to us that happened throughout all of salvation history in Israel. And again, you know what's so cool? Once they did that, now you're ready to make a firm resolve. Because in in the very last verse, verse 38, look at what Israel does. This is a moment in time. They cap off this chapter by saying, because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So picture this. These guys are stacking hands. They're stacking hands as community leaders, as business people, as ministers and priests, and they're saying, we will not go down the same road of our forefathers. But it's not just some fleshly OG, we're going to try to do this on our strength. No, they're doing this based on the fact that they know who they are and that they really need God. They've received his grace, they're releasing faith, and only then they're making a firm resolve to say, we are going to follow. I'm telling you, folks, it's an amazing cycle that we see here that, again, doesn't completely replace the cycle of sin and forgiveness. Because here's the deal. You're going to still fall at times. Amen? You guys are really weak on the amen say. There are times that you're going to fall in your life still. I I mean, I'm not saying I don't believe in in, in your Christian maturity, but there are times we're still going to fall. And when we fall, we go through the cycle of sin and forgiveness. It's just that let's not stay mired in that cycle. Because part of Christian maturity is upstreaming our sin, upstreaming our our disobedience, and saying, I want to opt for something better, God. I'm going to recognize who I am. I'm going to receive your grace. I'm going to release faith and trust in you. And based on that, I resolve to walk with you in purity and righteousness. I'm telling you, folks, I've been doing this for years now. I'm not trying to sound like a spiritual giant. I'm just saying, I know I wake up every day. I got one or two roads I can take. I can go down that road of what Willard calls sin management and just kind of treat God that way, or I can walk with him based upon his grace. See, when you think about it, uh, one cycle is more about, and I like this, one cycle is more about just asking God for help, and the other cycle is more about asking God to be your very life. Isn't it true? 
I, I, I mean, I, I don't mean to, to, to make some of it sound very shallow, but if all you do is the cycle of, of sin and forgiveness, all that is is a glorified way of asking God for help in your life. You know, you make a mess of it, you get in distress, and then you kind of pull the ripcord and say, help God. And again, he loves you and he's so gracious that he helps you. And you go, hey, isn't God great? And I hear Christians tell testimony after testimony after testimony that just follows the pathway of sin and forgiveness. And again, it's good, but, but let me ask you this question. If that was your kid functioning like that all of their life, and maybe for some of you, I'm sorry, it is your kid that's functioning like that for their, all their life. If that's your kid, aren't you just a little bit disappointed? If all your kid does is mess up and then repent all cyclically all their life, I mean, you finally just say, hey, when are we going to help this kid break that pattern and start to make something of his or her life? That's part of what we do to help our kids. Could it be that God wants the same for you? <laughs> he wants you and I to break that pattern because, you see, the other one is all about helping or all about asking God to be our very life. It's more humbling. I mean, the cycle of sin and forgiveness, quite frankly, some people see it as more mature because it's really self-sufficient, Right? Just do your own thing, and if you need God, well, I'll ask God if I need him. But other than that, he's maybe self-sufficient, and this is the West, and I can do my own thing, and da-da-da-da. I said, go, yeah, how, as Phil, Dr. Phil would say, how's that working for you? So it doesn't work very well. The other one's more humbling because the other one means that you have to really stop believing all these things that people think you are and that you're really strong and really tough and you got life by a tail and all this, and you have to admit that there but for the grace of God go I. That at the end of the day, I really am a mess. That at the end of the day, I need God every moment of every day. And so I'm going to do that. I'm, I'm going to walk with him in that way. I have a really good friend in Cleveland who was an elder in my last church. He's one of the guys that I would look up to in my faith. He uh, became a Christian probably 30, 35, 40 years ago. And he was a, a, a middle age at that time. And uh, when he became a Christian, he started to really grow and became a, a, a strong leader in the Cleveland area within our Christian subculture. He was an elder at my last church, and his name is John, and he, he, he tells his story. He, he says something very interesting in the midst of telling his testimony that I think is very revealing for you and me today. Look up here on the screen. He's fond of saying this quite often. He says, in the 1980s, Jesus became my Savior. In the 1990s, I learned to make him my Lord. But it was only in this last decade that he became my very life. See, I think that's Christian maturity right there. I know some of you idealists were saying, well, he should have been his life back in the 80s. <laughs> well, glad you're not a pastor. So, you know. Um, <laughs> reality is, is that most of us come to Jesus and we just immediately enter into that cycle of sin and forgiveness. And that's okay. Again, God meets us in that. But eventually God says, am I going to be more than just your cosmic forgiver? Am I going to be more than even just your cosmic leader? When am I going to be your very life? When are you going to realize that your absolute satisfaction and sufficiency depend upon me? It's Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Folks, that is Christian maturity. You know, there's a portion of the New Testament that many scholars debate about like crazy. They're called the Beatitudes. And it's this teaching that Jesus did in which he was, uh, you know, really setting the bar very high on what it means to be a follower of himself. And some people think the bar was set so high that it can't even happen until heaven, that Jesus was kind of describing the, the golden age, the millennial age, and heaven itself. 
But I don't think so. I think the Beatitudes were, were meant to be applied today. Maybe I'll do a series on them at some point. But, but maybe now, based on today, Matthew 5, verse 3 will make sense to you. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. See, see, that's what Jesus is looking for in you and I. He's looking for people that are poor in spirit, who look inside and say, I'm not what I think I am. <laughs> I need God. And, and here's the amazing thing. You do have a choice. You can live your spiritual life as Israel did, for so many years, and even as many do today, by the cycle of sin and forgiveness, and again, God will meet you in that. Or you can meet God in the realm of the cycle of woundedness leading to brokenness where you recognize before you even fall your fallenness and receive his amazing grace each moment of each day and then learn to walk and rest upon his grace and then resolve to follow him. And I hope you choose that today. I hope that's the journey you're on. Closing thought, and with this we're going to sing some so another song as we uh, wrap it up. We've studied the history of revivals in the Western world. We've done a lot of study on them from multiple churches across the ocean as well as now here in America. Interesting uh, notation is that there has never been a revival in any Christian culture, whether over in Europe or here today, that was not predicated on this kind of brokenness that we're talking about today. Until God's people had a very clear understanding of how fallen they were and how great God is, and then recognized that. And, and as a group of people started to live out of that reality, there was never a blowing of God's spirit within their midst that we would call revival. And because I know that, and because I know the importance of these two cycles here today and where God needs to take us, I was praying a lot this week that Scottsdale Bible Church would become a broken church. I got to be careful how I say that, right? Because if you go and quote me, it sounds like I'm asking that we would become a dysfunctional church. <laughs> well, we already are that, so I don't need to pray for that. <laughs> I'm praying that we would become the kind of church in which there's a bunch of broken people among us. And I don't mean broken in some pathetic sense. I mean broken in the sense that we know who we are. And we know that as outwardly tough as people might see us and successful inwardly in light of God we know who we are and we desperately desperately need him and that without him we would be absolutely lost I'm telling you folks I think of that every day I, I, I sometimes feel like a fish out of water in this place because it's such a successful place and we're such a large megachurch. And I'm telling you, I don't wake up thinking of myself as a megachurch pastor. I don't. I sometimes wish I did. Maybe I'd be more effective. I get up every day and my first thought is, I call it my idiot prayer. My first thought is, I'm an idiot. I, I just, I think of that. I think I did this yesterday. I had this dream. I dreamed. I dreamt last night that I sawed in half a Sorraro cactus. I'm sorry, I did. <laughs> And I don't even know why. I said to some of my Pentecostal friends, I said, interpret that thing for me. I don't even know what, what has happened. And I felt bad about it. I'm like, I'm just, I'm so messed up. I mean, who has dreams like that? Of course, one gal said, if that's your worst dream, you're blessed. And she's probably right. But, but I wake up every day and I just say to God, thank you that you love me. Thank you for your grace. Because I know what's in me and I know who you are. In 33 years, you pulled me out of the muck and mire, and you saved me, and you set my feet on dry ground, and for some amazing reason, you used me. Thank you for that. And I'm telling you, starting my day that way, I, I then drive to this place, and I sit there and go, now maybe God can use me. 
Because I'm not reading my own press releases. I'm just a child of God walking with him. I'd rather live no other way. I'd rather leave my family no other way. I'd rather relate to my kids and my friends no other way. I'd rather love you guys no other way than that way. The cycle of woundedness leading to brokenness. Here's what we're going to do as we wrap up. Uh, in our Cactus Campus and our venue, we're going to do the same. I've chosen a song along with Troy that's one of our newer, more meaningful songs. And I hope you can sing this for all it's worth here today. It's called, Lord, I Need You. It goes like this. Lord, I come, I confess. Bowing here, I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart. You're the one that guides my heart. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. You're my one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. We're going to pray right now. After we pray, we're going to stand and sing. Cactus and Venue will have their own time of worship. I hope you sing this with a heart that is broken before God because he's got you right where he wants you if that's you here today. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that your grace is so amazing that you never, ever, ever give up on us. Thank you, God, that you're even willing to meet us in this kind of second place cycle of sin and forgiveness. Lord, why you're ever calling us to a cycle of woundedness leading to brokenness. So God, help us to be the kind of people who recognize how fallen we are and mourn that and grieve that like they did in Nehemiah 9, but we don't stay there. Help us, Lord, then to go into the realm of receiving your mercy, focusing on your goodness and grace, and then, Lord, releasing our full faith and trust in you and no one else but you, and then resolving to follow you with everything in us. God, if you could do that among our midst, there'd be no stopping us in our usability here in Scottsdale and beyond. And Lord, as we're going to see in a few weeks too, you even give us joy as a byproduct of that kind of living. So God, would you do that in us, each of us individually? May we not escape the two cycles that have been put before us today. So Lord, we want to worship you now. We sing to you with all of our hearts. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.